If you have your Bible with you today, please turn to the book of Luke, the Gospel according to Luke. We'll be continuing in Luke 2. We're in a series through the Gospel according to Luke. And we will be finishing up Luke 2 today, verses 41 through 52. That will be our text for this morning. And if you don't have a Bible with you, you can use one of our chair Bibles. There should be a couple in the seat backs, at least for each row. Um, And if you are using one of our chair Bibles, you can go to page 858. That's where this text is found. So it'll be Luke 2, 41 through 52. And Eric is coming to read the scripture for us this morning. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying when he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your great love for us. And we thank you for your word which shows us who Jesus is and what he came to do. And so we ask now that you would work, that you would help us to see him and to be amazed. Spirit, would you come and do that? Would you work? Would you show us who he is? Would you show us how great his love is for us and how sufficient his sacrifice was to take care of all our sins? Would you do that for us? And then would you change us into the people that you want us to be for your glory? In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So we're at the end in this passage. We're at the end of kind of the first section of Luke. He started with that short four-verse introduction, setting up, Everything that was coming where he says, I'm talking about the things that have been accomplished among us. He's talking about what Jesus did, who Jesus is and what he did in his life. And then in these first two chapters with the birth of John the Baptist, now the birth of Jesus, the dedication of Jesus at the temple last week, and now this one story from his boyhood, Luke is setting up what's going to be happening in the rest of this Gospel. Now, we're used to the idea of Jesus being a baby, right? Because Christmas, and we kind of just had it, and so there's like, yeah, there's the baby and the manger and all that. And then it's almost like there's a time warp 
to the beginning of Jesus' ministry, right? We're very used to him being a baby, and then we're very used to him being an adult and ministering and teaching and healing and living the perfect life for us, dying on the cross in our place, rising from the dead. We're used to those things. Uh, And it feels that way, like there was a time warp between birth and 30 years of age, because the text that Eric just read to us from Luke 2 is the one story we have in all that gap. This is it. There's nothing else in any of the canonical Gospels, any of the Gospels that you'll find in your Bible. There are other stories that circulated, like 200 years later, where people are trying to fill in the gaps, and, and mainly they had him doing miracles, kind of like you, the, the far side from back in the day that's Moses as a baby in the bathtub, and he's like parting the water. It's like that kind of thing where you go, that must have been what they were doing when they were young. It's like, no, that's... That's not how that works. Um, Jesus wasn't just going around performing miracles all the time at home, doing tricks for his family. That's not why he came. So we know nothing else about his growing up. And it's interesting. This is a story that may not be a favorite of parents. My wife and I were talking about this last night. She's like, you know what? I never really liked this story. We see Jesus once in his youth, and he's correcting his mother. And you think, that, that seems wrong, right? But he's also God in the flesh. And so your kids that are trying to correct you, it's still okay for you to tell them they shouldn't do that. So one application right out of the way early today. And even then, Jesus, we're told in those last couple of verses, he was submissive to them. He obeyed them, even if he gave them a mild heart attack in this story. But there is a temptation for us to speculate about what we don't know, where we want to fill in gaps, even in this story, right? Because in what he just read, they went out a day's journey thinking that he was in their company. You go, you know, how would that work? You know, we've left a kid at a soccer field or whatever for like five minutes, but how... And you left your kids anywhere? I got left at a baseball game once when I was 12. It was... Not very exciting. And it can be tricky, you know, if you're in two vehicles or whatever. But, you know, how could they be missing him for a whole day? Wouldn't they get to where they're going and go, uh? But they would have been traveling in a large group. I mean, it would almost be like the church taking an outing. They'd be with lots of friends and relatives. They're having a good time. It's like, you know, at the church picnic, some of you didn't see your kids for like an hour of that thing, right? And it was no big deal. Someone else is watching them. They're not running out on the road, I'm sure. And none of them were. There was a, it was fenced in. Um, but that same kind of thing where you can be doing your thing and you don't even notice that they're gone. And so they went out a day and then they're coming back a day and then they're looking for him a day. And some have tried to fill in gaps. You know, where did Jesus sleep? How, what did Jesus do for food? And the thing is, we don't know. So we don't want to focus on speculation about what we don't know. We want to understand what is here and why it's here. Because this is what God wants us to know. This is the one story God wants us to have about Jesus from his youth. And it's as Luke is closing out this section. He's he's filling in the picture a little bit more of who Jesus is and what he is coming to do. So far, we've seen angels and other people like Simeon. Zechariah, 
the angel to Mary. We've seen others tell us something about who Jesus is and something about what he will do. And here in this story, we hear the first time from Jesus himself. This is the first time that Jesus talks in our Bible. It's the first time he tells us something about who he is and what he has come to do. So the big idea this morning as we consider this text and this story and what it means for us today is that we should be amazed by Jesus. We should be amazed by Jesus. Now, we use amazing. I would say, I had an amazing day, right? You might say something like that. Maybe you feel like, I would never say that because I don't have amazing days. But just imagine what an amazing day would be like, right? It's basically a day where everything goes your way. And you have a good time. Uh, but that's not really what we mean by amazed. And, and we even see that people were amazed in this story. The idea of amazing is something that is mind-blowing. Something that maybe even is confusing to us. Because it's not what we expect. It's surprising. It could be almost disorienting. Something we can't fully comprehend. But we end up having deep appreciation for whether it's a great piece of music masterfully presented, we might say, that was amazing. It's beyond our capabilities to understand how they could do that, but they do, and it's great, and we appreciate it. Or a work of art. Perhaps you go down to the art museum, and you go, wow, and it's, its scope and its scale. This is amazing. Or maybe architecture. Or a landscape, right? Even in How Great Thou Art that we sang earlier, we were talking about considering all these things that God has made and seeing them. Wow, he is great, being amazed. Or maybe on a more mundane level, you're you're amazed by trick shot videos. And you go, how did they do that? We got to figure that out. We want to try that. But whatever it is, when we're talking about something that's amazing, it's something that we can't quite grasp, but we're glad. Does that make sense? We can't quite get it, but we're really happy about it. And we really appreciate it. And that's what should happen with Jesus. We will never fully grasp him in this life. And we're going to see some ways that we can't fully grasp him in the text today. We will never fully grasp him, but we can be grateful that the Father sent his Son to live and die and rise for us. And we can embrace him by faith, even though we don't know everything yet. The day is coming when we will know even as we are known, but we're not there yet. So we'll see in the text this morning that Jesus is fully human That's something we can't quite grasp, but we need to really be grateful for. That he's fully divine. That again is like, how? But we're grateful. That Jesus is fully committed. He's fully committed to the will of his Father. And that ends up meaning that he's fully committed to us. And then seeing how we should respond to this amazing Savior. So we should be amazed by Jesus. Let's look first at the idea that Jesus is fully human. Jesus is fully human. This is something that's spelled out in more doctrinal sections where, where in the letters we're saying Jesus was human. But here we get it in a picture, in a story. 
And again, we're used to the idea of him being a baby and him being a man. But Jesus didn't just skip from the manger to the ministry. Right? Before he became a man, he was a boy. And in this story, Jesus grows in ways that we wouldn't expect God in the flesh to grow. And this is why this is hard to grasp. Even the the verse right before the text that Eric read for us, look back at that at Luke 2.40. After they returned to their own town of Nazareth, verse 40, the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. And then the last verse that Eric read for us, verse 52. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. This is hard for us to understand. Like, can God grow? You say, no, he doesn't. But because Jesus came as a man, God himself came as a man, he did grow because he came as a baby. And he grew up just like we grow up. He was a baby just like we were babies. We're told that he increased in wisdom and in stature or years. He, he grew up. And he grew in favor with God and man. That's another like, wait, what? How could, how could he grow in favor with God? Didn't God always love him completely? And I'm not here to try to explain that to you today. Part of what I want us to feel is the wonder and the awe that we should feel before Jesus as he is revealed to us. And Luke here is actually kind of pulling on some great tradition with the words that he uses to talk about Jesus growing up. Talking about real boys who grew up to be real men who did great things for God. I mean, even back in Luke 1, Luke 1.80, the last verse of that one, speaking of John the Baptist, says the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Or in Judges 13.24, Samson is born. They called his name Samson, and the young man grew, and the Lord blessed him. But the one I really want you to see, the one that's the closest to Luke 2.52 is 1 Samuel 2.26. 1 Samuel 2.26. It says, Now the boy Samuel continued to grow, both in stature and in favor with the Lord, and also with man. Does that sound familiar? So this is kind of a, a formulaic saying to talk about someone whose birth was really special. The birth of Samuel was special. The birth of Samson was special. And they were given a specific purpose. And with each of them, he grew. And he grew, in Samuel's case, in favor with God and with man. And so as we think about Jesus being fully human and all that that would mean, he was like us in every way except without sin. Jesus identifies fully with us. He knows what it's like to be 12. He's 12 in this story. He knows what it's like to be 15. He knows what it's like to grow up. He knows what it's like even to grow up with parents who don't always get him completely. And maybe those of you who are in your teen years or entering your teen years feel that way. 
And even then, Jesus, having, and he really knew that they didn't get him. Maybe you just think they don't get you, and maybe they really do. He was submissive to them. So Jesus understands. That's one of the big takeaways for us. When we think of Jesus being fully human, is whatever we are facing, Jesus understands. And it's not just that he understands. Jesus, we're told, increased in wisdom. This is another one where it's like, but how, right? But if we think about it, like Jesus had to learn to tie his shoes or, you know, his sandals. He had to learn skills. Uh, Commentators point out that, you know, he was burped and changed and all those things just like any other baby. And he had to learn to walk. And it's, How can God learn to walk? But it's what he did in order to identify with us, in order to save us. So Jesus increased in wisdom. And it wasn't automatic. And so another takeaway for us as we think about Jesus being fully human is that if Jesus increased in wisdom... I certainly need to increase in wisdom, no matter what age I am. And he's going to be upset about me for this, but Walt, and I've mentioned this before, Walt, who's sitting right here in the front, still wants to grow in being like Christ, still wants to grow in knowing Christ. We sent out an email, if you're not on our email list, there's a sign-up sheet, (laughs) brief add over. We send an email out every Friday with, here's what's happening on Sunday. Here's the song list. Here's the responsive reading. Here's the sermon text. And often Walt will come up and say, ooh, my outline was kind of close to yours this week. As he has studied through the sermon text before getting here to hear something from me, because it's not about what I think. It's about what God has said. And if there's anybody among us that you'd say, eh, I've, I've done what I need to do. I've done all the growing that I need to do. I've arrived. It would be Walt. And yet he's one of the ones among us who the most wants to know Jesus more and wants to grow more in likeness to Christ. If Jesus needed to increase in wisdom, if Walt needs to increase in wisdom... I need to increase in wisdom. You need to increase in wisdom. And this is a pursuit from our youth until we see Jesus face to face. No matter what I think I've attained, I need to grow in wisdom. I need to grow in knowing Jesus and loving Him and loving others. And kids... Part of the takeaway from this story is that you are not too young for this. This is not just, you know, that adults need continuing education. You are not too young for this. That's one of the reasons that we provide ways for you to take notes. And you go and get the clipboards every Sunday and you have the pencils and you take the notes and you 
come up here and show them to somebody. I love getting to be one of the people up at the front every once in a while and see the things that you're taking away from the sermons and that you're writing down and you're thinking about and the things that you don't understand and you want to learn. And we're really grateful for how you kids have embraced that. And you're taking notes and you're wanting to learn, you're wanting to grow, you're asking questions. That's good. Jesus was 12. Some of you are 12. Jesus was your age. And at your age, he was pursuing knowing God through studying his Bible. Again, we can go, well, he's God in the flesh. He kind of wrote the Bible. He, de- he had a distinct advantage over us. It's true. And even he learned by studying. And so we will learn, whether we're 12 or 42 or 62 or 82, we will learn By seeing God in his word. By aggressively pursuing knowledge of him. There's lots of other knowledge for you guys who are in the 12-ish range that you're being called to pursue. Some of you are already thinking about where you're going to go to high school. And if once, as soon as you start high school, you're thinking about where you're going to go to college. And now when you go to college, you're thinking about where you're going to go to grad school. And you're thinking about all these things. But in all your pursuits, pursue Christ. He's the one that you must have. He's the one that you must know. Pursue him. Because increasing in wisdom never happens passively. It never happens just while while we sit and wait for it. It takes an active pursuit. In the book of James, James tells us in chapter 1 and verse 5 of that book, that if we don't have wisdom, to ask God for it. So one way we pursue is by asking. And James is known as kind of the Proverbs of the New Testament, the wisdom book of the New Testament. But when we think about Proverbs as part of that wisdom section in the Old Testament, if there's one thing we learn from Proverbs, is that we need to pursue wisdom. We need to go after it. It says, my son, get wisdom. And the idea isn't like, oh, that, you know, that's a good idea if I get around to it one of these days. That that's something that we pursue with all our energy. And then as we think about increasing in wisdom, you know, what even is that? Well, there is the category of wisdom. It's, it's applying knowledge. Applying knowledge. Our choices are not always between a clear right and wrong. Especially the adults know this. Right? It'd be so simple, we would still fail a lot, because we already do at the things that are already clear. But wouldn't it be so simple if there were writing in the sky about what job you should take, and where you should move to, and what you should do, and all that sort of thing. And, that, and that's what we think. If God would speak to me like that, I would certainly, I would just do it. Our choices are not always between a clear right and wrong. It will take biblical wisdom to know what is best. We grow in wisdom by regular exposure to God through exposure to his word. That's how we learn what he thinks, what he says, what he values. And so then we learn to apply those values to the choices that are put in front of us. Wisdom is the application of knowledge and we cannot apply knowledge we don't have. We have no hope of applying knowledge that we don't possess. 
And there's no shortcut to getting it. So Jesus was fully human. He increased in wisdom, in stature, in favor with God and man. And as we think about him being fully human, perhaps it leads us to think about why he needed to be. Because it's not just that, oh, Jesus is fully human. That's a neat aspect of his story. The rest of the New Testament reveals that Jesus needed to be human. Look at Hebrews 2, 14 through 18. It'll be up on the screen behind me. Thinking about Jesus' complete humanity. It says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus needed to be fully human so that he could pay the price for our sins. So that he could bear in his very real body on that tree all our sins. Jesus' full humanity means that we as humans can be saved through his life, death, and resurrection. He needed to be fully human. So it's not just, oh, that's neat. Look at that. There he is growing up. That's so cute. Jesus is fully human, and he needed to be fully human so that we could have life with him forever. And this full humanity of Christ, it was a problem for some people in the first century. Like even for us, when it's like, wait, Jesus learned to tie shoes? I'm not shoes, but you know what I mean. Jesus learned to, to eat properly. Jesus may have needed to learn manners. Jesus could increase in wisdom. This is hard for us to comprehend, and especially in the first century, it was very difficult for people to comprehend How can we speak of God really becoming a man? And so some people taught instead that Jesus only seemed to be a man. That he only looked like a man. That he he appeared to us in a form that we could understand, but he wasn't really one of us. Right? After all, I mean, it almost seems blasphemous to speak of this God who is so not like us, so high above us, becoming like us in every respect. And yet, he did. He did become like us, we're told, in every respect except without sin. And in 1 John 4, the Apostle John deals with this error. He says, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. So John draws a hard line. Says Jesus really is fully human. We need this. We're not saved without this. Jesus is fully human. 
So we see that in our text. But we also see that Jesus is fully divine. He is fully human and he is fully divine. That means that he is fully God. Again, we use divine in kind of lighter ways. Oh, that dessert was divine. Actually, I never say anything like that, but some of you possibly do. That is an appropriate use of the word today. But when we say he's fully divine, we say he is God. He is God himself who came down to save us. So in the first century, they had a difficult time with the full humanity of Jesus. He was so amazing, we can't say he was really one of us. In our more enlightened age, it's the other way around. Right? We're comfortable with Jesus being fully human in our culture. But the idea of there being a transcendent God who's far above us and comes down to live with us in order to save us, that's something that doesn't make sense to your neighbors or your co-workers. And there perhaps were even days when that didn't make sense to you. People are more likely today to say that Jesus' followers, like Luke, made up all the stuff about him being God and that he was just another great religious prophet, an excellent moral or ethical teacher. But God, through his word, doesn't let us take that position either. That's not a good position. Just like we can't say, well, he sort of seemed to be human. We can't say, well, he was just a really great person who like, attained to heights that most people don't reach. Jesus is revealed to us as the Lord, and we've seen that already in Luke, that he is God himself come down to dwell with us. He's the Lord, the Son of God. That's how he's revealed in this text. He's either that or he's not. There's no in-between. And so that's part of the mystery. He's fully human, but he's not just any other boy. He is fully divine. God in the flesh come down to save us. Again, I cannot explain that. We want to stand in wonder. We want to stand in awe that God would do this, that he would go to these lengths to save us, people who do not deserve his love who do not deserve his care, who do not deserve to be his people. This is what he has done for us. Jesus, we see in this text, is the unique son of God. The virgin birth has already come up in chapter 1 where it's very clear Joseph had nothing to do with the birth of Jesus. That the Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary. And again, we don't know how and I can't explain. But Jesus was born of a virgin. But he was content to live with everyone thinking that Joseph was was his father. And even in this text, Mary talks about Joseph that way. She says, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. So Mary's just talking the way you would usually talk in this case. And even in blended families today, especially if the children are very young, you may end up talking about calling someone dad who's not your actual dad, right? But you feel that they are. They, they've taken care of you. They've loved you. And Joseph treated Jesus this way. Joseph took care of him. Joseph looked out for him. And so Jesus may even have called him dad. But Mary certainly thought of him 
that way. And she says, your father and I have been looking for you. But Jesus, in his first words, reveals an understanding of the virgin birth, that Joseph was not his actual father, and that therefore this family was not his deepest family, but that he has God for his father. Look back at your text. Verse 48, when his parents saw him, this after they finally found him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he says something surprising. This is part of what's amazing. It's not what they expected. And he said to them in verse 49, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. So Jesus demonstrates his awareness here. That Joseph is not actually his father. Joseph doesn't demand first allegiance. That God himself is Jesus' father. Jesus is fully divine. But Jesus demonstrates here not just an awareness that God is his father. But a commitment to this heavenly father above all. All else. So Jesus is fully human. Jesus is fully divine. He is the Son of God Himself, not Joseph. And Jesus, as the Son of God, is fully committed. Jesus is fully committed. In verse 49, he said, did you not know that I must be in my Father's house? And if, you're, if you grew up on the King James Version like I did that it's that I must be about my father's business. And you go like, well, how did that change? Well, interestingly, in the Greek, and we don't do this a whole lot here, so bear with me for a second. In the Greek, it just says, about the of my father. And it's not that there's a word missing. There's a word that's assumed, but we don't know exactly what that word would be. And you could just translate it about the things of my father. And so... Both translations are faithful to it as they're trying to make sense of this idiom. And many commentators will say, in my father's house, that's the best way um, to translate it. And as you're in your father's house, you're living under his rules and you're doing what he tells you to do. So that still connects with the older idea of being about my father's business, about his things. Which is exactly what Jesus is trying to convey. He says, you're looking for me. Why are you looking for me? Didn't you know I have to be here? I have to be about my father and his will for me, his plan for me. And for Jesus, there is a necessity to this. We might skip over this, especially if we're going difference between father's house and father's business. What is that? It says, did you not know that I must be in my father's house? That word for must is the, is the word that's often translated. It is necessary. And so Jesus has a sense already at 12, through his relationship with God, his true father, he has a sense of God's will for his life, God's plan for his life, and that this is a necessity. This is what he must do. This is where he must 
be. This word, it is necessary, is going to come up a lot as we go through Luke. It shows up 18 times in Luke and several more times in Acts. And a bunch of those are in moments like this, where Jesus is saying, it's necessary that I do something. I must go and preach in other towns also, he will say in just a few chapters. Jesus is more committed to his Father's plan for him than he is to anything, even his own family. This sense of necessity drives Jesus. And it even at points drives him apart from his earthly family when they don't understand the call of God on his life. And we'll see that later on in chapter 8. And what was this father's plan? What was the call of God on his life? The father's plan was for him to suffer. For him to die. And to rise again for us. This was the father's plan for him. And Jesus knew it. He knew he needed to be about his father's business. That it was necessary You may remember on the day of the resurrection, this is in Luke 24, he's walking with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus and talking with them. And when they're saying, are you the only person who doesn't know what happened in Jerusalem these last few days? Here's his answer, Luke 24, verses 25 and 26. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory. And then he told them from all the scriptures the things concerning himself. That was it not necessary? It's the same word here that I must be about my father's business. Do you have a clear sense of God's will for your life? Now, depending on where you grow up, you may have different things that come into your head when I say that. Uh, Because depending on what kind of church you were raised in, or maybe you weren't raised in a church at all, anything, a sense of God's will for my life, that means like who I'm going to marry, it means where I'm going to live, it means exactly what kind of job I'm going to have, and I have a very clear sense of God's will for my life. And maybe you have that, and that's wonderful, and that's not what I'm talking about. Whatever our vocation, we are called to be about the Father's business too. Whether we've achieved the milestones we thought we would achieve by now, we are called to be about the Father's business too. Whether we're in the career we thought we'd be in or we're in a completely different one that doesn't seem to make any sense, but we have a lot of coworkers who don't know Jesus. Hmm. We're called to be about our Father's business. We talked earlier about wisdom, being able to properly apply knowledge. And we need wisdom. But there are many, many, many moments in our lives where wisdom is actually not what we need. We simply need courage and faith to do what we already know is right. Right? We like to put everything in the, oh, it's, it, this is going to be a wisdom call because there's no clear, I don't know. But there's a whole lot of times where it really is clear. And we know we're not supposed to do what we did or say what we said. Or we know we're supposed to do something and we pull back out of fear. You ever experienced that? I do. 
We need help from the Holy Spirit to obey God's word, what has already been revealed to us. We may not know what job we're supposed to have or where exactly we're supposed to live, but God has told us quite a bit about what we are supposed to be doing in whatever situation we find ourselves. So if we will follow Jesus, we're called to follow him in this too. We must be ready to face difficulty, even misunderstanding, rejection, perhaps by an earthly family, in order to do the will of our Heavenly Father. Part of the good news of the gospel is that Jesus is still about the Father's business. He didn't stop. Even now, having ascended to his Father, he prays for us. Jesus prays for you. He prays for me. He prays for us that we will make it to the end in our faith. And he's he's not just praying for us. One day he's going to come for us. He is still about his father's business. Even now he's in his father's house. And by his grace we will dwell in his father's house with him forever. And while we wait with the power of the spirit, we are called to be about the father's business All because Jesus was fully human, fully divine, and fully committed to his Father's will. And because he's committed to his Father's will, he's committed to us. So how will we respond to Jesus? That's the last thing that we see in our text. We see people responding to Jesus. How we respond to Jesus reveals our eternal destiny. Every person on the earth is in one of two groups based on their response to Jesus. Either he is the Son of God, God himself come in the flesh, fully human, fully divine, who gave his life as a sacrifice for our sins, or he's not. So our allegiance is to him, the Lord of all. He is the King. Our allegiance is not to a set of values. It's not to certain standards, even a value system that we may get from the Bible. Our first allegiance is to Christ. And then he leads us to be in submission to his word by the power of his spirit. Our allegiance is to Jesus. And in this story, the people, we see in verse 47, all who heard were amazed at his understanding and his answers. This is not normal 12-year-old stuff. This is someone who knows his Bible. This is someone who's asking good questions, has amazing insight. Even though he will still increase in wisdom from here, he had a lot of it by then. They were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And then when his parents find him in verse 48, it says they were astonished. Mary, who had received the announcement by Gabriel and been told all these things that Jesus would do and be, still doesn't fully get it. Doesn't fully get him. There are moments where she does not understand. Are we ever surprised by Jesus? Are we prepared, even as we work through Luke, to be surprised at how he works? To be surprised at what he says? To be amazed at him? And to realize, okay, this is God, so I need to adjust my thoughts about him, not adjust him to my thoughts so that he makes sense in my world of understanding. They didn't understand. And this won't be the last time that Mary doesn't understand. Later on, she'll be coming with his brothers trying to get him. And we learn from Mark 
in Mark 3, that it's because they thought he was out of his mind. There will be a time when Jesus is an adult in his ministry that Mary is so confused by what he is doing. This does not line up with what I think he's going to be, that they're trying to kind of get him under control a little bit. She's going to go, Mary, come on. But she didn't understand. Now, she doesn't understand, but she is paying attention. We see that from near the end of our text. Verse 50, they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. But then verse 51. He went down with them and came to Nazareth, was submissive to them, and his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. Now, we've already heard things like that before. Mary pondered this. Mary treasured this. And so this kind of puts, again, a cap on this section. Mary's been pondering, treasuring the whole time. She doesn't understand fully, but she's paying attention. She's pondering. She's thinking about it. Are we paying attention? Or are we distracted? Are we distracted by the latest thing? The problems that seem so large that are right in front of us that we miss Jesus? Are we paying attention? Are we treasuring what we know about who Jesus is and what he came to accomplish? She's been pondering, considering, treasuring, wondering, and believing. She's trusting as much as she knows and trusting God for the rest. If that's your spot, you're in really good company. Or you might say, I don't understand everything. Actually, all of us, if we're being honest, that's what we would say. I don't understand, but I know him. I know who he is, and I know what he has done for me. So even though I can't comprehend everything in my life right now, I will trust him. Because he knows what's best for me. And he's already shown that he's willing to do what's best for me because he came and lived and died and rose again for me. We don't understand everything either, but by his grace, we believe. The big idea was simply this. We should be amazed by Jesus. We should stand in awe of him. Be in wonder before him. Ponder who he is and what he has done. He's fully human, fully divine, fully committed to his Father's will. And amazingly, because he's committed to his Father's will, he's fully committed to us. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 is another passage that talks about him, what he's done for us that I want us to end with this morning. Since then... We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So let's come to him. Let's look for him in his word and grow in wisdom as we see him. Let's be amazed by who he is and what he's accomplished for us. Let's trust him. Let's come to him day by day in repentance and in faith. He took care of all our sin and he will take care of us all the way to the end. Let's pray. Oh God, would you amaze us at who you are, who Jesus is, 
and what he has accomplished for us by his life, death, and resurrection all in our place so that everyone who hopes in him can have life with him both now and forever. Would you help us never to get over that good news? Never to get used to Jesus. Never get used to having the Spirit living inside us. Oh God, would you do this work in us? And as you do that, would we grow in wisdom? Would we grow in our love for you and our love for others? Our ability to see needs and to know how to meet them. Oh God, we need your help. We thank you that by your spirit, you are our strong helper. In Jesus' name, amen.